Westmont, take your Bibles and turn to Exodus, Exodus 2, Exodus 2. That is our study in this wonderful book, and we continue it together. Last week, if you catch a glance at the beginning of chapter 2, we looked at the birth of Moses. We observed the providence of God in arranging the circumstances. Remember, the carefully preserved Hebrew baby cast on the Nile, then found by none other than who, remember? Pharaoh's daughter, and that was the same Pharaoh, of course, do you remember in chapter 1, that issued the execution order. And Moses now, after that order went out, Moses is right there in Pharaoh's house, providentially, again by the hand of God. All the events to open this chapter orchestrated by that sovereign hand of God. Moses, the great man of God, as his epitaph reads in Deuteronomy 33.1, he is indeed the great man of God. Moses, the great servant of God, birthed, preserved, protected, and named, which is precisely where we left off. Look at verse 10. That's where we left off last week, and we just want to pick our study right back up. Let's continue with the reading of our passage this morning. Verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's where we'll be. This morning, and the theme, as you might have detected already, in that passage is humiliation. Humiliation. No one likes to be humiliated. Is that not true? Everyone winces when they consider the times of humiliation in their life. The low points where, maybe as you think of it now, the memory still hurts. Do you know what I'm talking about? It stings. 
the humiliation. And as a result, no one would ever seek to be humiliated. Is that not true? Who desires that, to be humiliated? Even more, who would view humiliation as something that is necessary? Consider that. Who would ever view humiliation as something that is necessary? I mean, the need to be brought low, the need to be broken down, who says that? Who says that? Well, beloved, God does. And his word not only tells us that, but as we'll see this morning, it shows us that as well. His word regularly demonstrates the need for his people to be humiliated. Now, to be clear this morning, I need to say that especially as we always unpack the baggage of words today, we are not talking about embarrassing moments. That's not what we're talking about. Those are moments. Those sting, but it's just like a little scrape compared to the vast humiliation often that goes on for seasons. We're not talking about something embarrassing. No, this humiliation is much more unforgettable than that. It's more than a moment. We're talking about humiliation that breaks one down to their core completely. We're talking about humiliation that brings one to the very lowest point in their life. Westmount, this is humiliation that strips one of all privilege and right, whether owed or not. This is humiliation, as we've seen at first glance in our text this morning, that takes one from a place of prestige in the lofty court of Egypt and relegates them to the impoverished wilderness of Midian. And this is humiliation, as will become clear in the weeks ahead, that is absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. This is humiliation that is preparation. Preparation for the purpose and the work of God. Consider David in the wilderness, do you remember? Hunted by Saul. And what was that? Preparation for what? Him becoming king. Consider Paul's three years in Arabia recounted in Galatians. The preparation for what? For him to transition from Saul to be the Apostle Paul. And this morning we arrive at the preparation of another man of God, like those two men, Moses. The account of his humiliation is brief. Look at it, just 12 verses. But his actual humiliation in depth is not brief. It's almost 40 years, in fact, 40 years. The time span we will cover today, that's the coverage in the second half of chapter 2. Yes, Humiliation takes time for many, some more than others, and that is because humiliation is necessary. Remember, vitally necessary because of what it does to us. Beloved, let's, let's let that sink in. It is doing something in us, humiliation. Humiliation, again, brings us low, real low, and at first that may not be pleasant, but Let's recount why it is necessary. Of course, when we think of humiliation, that is a posture that the world recoils at, right? Well, the world would want none of that. It's a location, here it is, that the proud hate. The proud hate to be brought low. The proud don't want to be low. The proud reside in the high and lofty places. The proud, of course, are what? Self-reliant. 
The proud are independent. The proud would not want anyone, perish the thought, to know that they have weaknesses. The proud are always confident that they can do it, and here it is with the proud. No matter what it is, I've got it. Yet the proud, or pride, is not a worldly problem. Beloved, it's a human problem. It's a human problem. Pride is our default position. Pride is our default position. Yes, that's all of us. Pride, as has been said, is the root of all sin, and I agree. It's where you set yourself above God and say, I'm high, I'm lifted up, I know, just like the garden. Sure, we're not all strutting around on rooftops proclaiming how great we are, right? Pride is much more calculated than that. But how often are we quietly, indirectly, claiming a confidence in ourselves? Do you know what I mean? It's very quiet, right? I can do it. I've got this. I'm able. I have a plan. I have means. In fact, I'm quite certain. Just watch. That's pride. And we know what comes next after those little axioms, don't we? Christian, we have walked and lived and felt the proverb that says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. So, Westmount, why is our humiliation necessary? Well, many of us, I would submit all of us, have painful scars that demonstrate why. Not only do godly things not happen in pride, but mark this, in pride, good things get destroyed. Not only do godly things not happen in pride, but good things get destroyed in pride. And I pray you see, church, why it is necessary for God to break his people down. When you have a nuclear weapon like pride, it needs to be disarmed. And that's what God does. I pray you see, church, why it is necessary for God to do this, to do this in us, before we can be used by God for his plans, purposes, and greater glory. Indeed, that's it, really. That's it. The glory of God alone. He will not tolerate a threat to his glory. He won't. So, if he will use you for his glory, and market Christian, if you are genuinely in Christ here today, he will use you. He uses all his children. If he will use you for his glory, then he must first break our pride. God must first bring us low to the bottom. God uses those who have been humiliated. And that word again, we just don't like it. We don't like humiliation. But the root word we do like. We like the root of that word. In fact, we strive for it. And what's that? It is humility. Well, now, there's a much more comfortable word, right? Humility. We like that word. Indeed, that connection, though, tells you something about our problem, doesn't it? Doesn't that tell you something? We like the outcome. We just don't like the process. So that is why we need texts like the one before us today, passages that detail humiliation and not, here it is, an aversion to it, but an embrace of it. Along the way this morning, we will observe three features of this humiliation. That's where we're going. 
Beloved, if you are a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve this morning, then pride is your battle. Pride is your battle. And this example from the Old Testament will be of great help to all of us today. So let's begin with that. First, the cause of humility. Look at verse 11, the cause of humility. One day, when Moses had grown up, stop there. Moses has grown up, and you would say, how old? Well, in Acts 7.23, which, by the way, is in the speech that Stephen gives before he's executed. Do you know that speech? He gives a long-running account of the history of Israel, and he actually at times parks out on certain accounts, and this is one of them, of Moses. Acts 7.23, we are told that Moses is now 40 years old, so we learn that from the New Testament here. The only other detail of Moses' early life is given in that same speech. So that was in verse 23. In Acts 7, 21 to 22, Stephen says this, that after Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Very insightful. So for the first 40 years of Moses' life, all we know and all we need to know is that Moses received training, right? That's important. He received training through Pharaoh, and not just any training. He's in Egypt, so he's receiving what kind of training? The very best in the world. Think about that. The first 40 years of Moses' life, he is being trained in the very best academy, Egypt of the day. He would have had access to libraries and resources, and mark this in the providence of God, that would have been impossible impossible for Hebrew and slavery. He had access to it. That's important. Let's hang on to that as we continue. So Moses has grown up in Egypt, and one day, look at verse 11, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Moses may be older. Moses may have spent most of his life in Egyptian courts, but mark this, he never forgot where he came from and who his people truly were. Moses here looks out on his people and said another way, you can take Moses out from the Hebrews, but you can't take the Hebrew out of Moses. It's exactly what we see here. And mark this, Westmount, this is a key with humility. It is the humble man that never forgets what? Where he's come from. It's the humble man that never forgets not only where he's come from, but who he is. On the inside. It's a key to our humility, Christians. And Moses here not only doesn't forget, but look at the wording here. He also feels for them. Look at the expression there. He looked on their burdens. That's a very emotive expression. It means to carry the sense of compassion. This is not just observation. This is looking out and feeling something about what you're seeing. Moses does not, hence, look down on his people, but he looks out at them with pity. And as he's looking, he witnesses something. Go back to verse 11. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. What a sight. There's this Egyptian beating up one of his people. And he's already moved with pity. He witnesses his cruelty, and Moses springs into action. Look at verse 12. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now let's be clear about a couple things that this verse is readily telling us. 
Number one, Moses' killing of the Egyptian is premeditated. Do you see that? We're not going to make any excuses for Moses this morning. He planned it, he looked this way and that, and he did it. It's a premeditated action. Two, with that, Moses' killing of the Egyptian is his choice, it's his doing. Look at the wording there. He struck. This is not an accidental thing falling on the Egyptian here. Moses is responsible. He acted. And we say so often, church, don't we? Actions have consequences, right? Actions have consequences. In fact, often with our actions, they're the first in a series of dominoes. I think we can all look back on that. And here, as we'll see, this killing sets in motion a series of subsequent events. And the consequences unfold in verse 13. Look at it with me. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And before we move on for a moment, let's be clear. Instead of an Egyptian beating up on a Hebrew, now it's two Hebrews fighting. Two of his own that are fighting. And instead of avenging, Moses looks to peacekeep here. It gets simplified by saying, he just simply asks, why the fight? Guys, why the fight? Let's continue with that simple question and the puzzling response. He answered, who made you, this is the aggressor, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. The aggressive Hebrew not only does not digress, but he turns this thing on Moses. Do you see that? He just turns it around on him. And I want you to note his twofold response here. One, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Now that is laden with irony, isn't it? Those of us that know what comes in our Old Testament would say, wow, if this guy only knew what would happen. In fact, Exodus 18, we won't get far in our study. And what is Moses doing with the people? He's judging and ruling over them. So much so he needs help. Secondly, he says, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? That, I mean, that's the response, he says. And it always is shocking when you see that. You'd think Moses is coming to his aid. You would say to the aggressor, you know, he's, he's missing it here. I mean, Moses stood up for the Hebrews. He, he, he's a nationalist here. He cares about the people. Why, why this response? And Indeed, both of these questions about the judging and intervening, both of them here foreshadow something that we're going to see much later in our Old Testament. And it is always the people questioning Moses' leadership. I just think even of one book within a few chapters. What do you have in Numbers 12? Not just anybody, but who? His brother and sister rising up against Moses. Four chapters later in 16, who is it? Korah has a group of men, right? And they rise up against Moses. This is something in his humiliation that he will see in his life. Do you see the connection? It's as if God is preparing him for what's to come. Preparing him for what's to come. Moses' people here, as we would look just in context and say they're missing the intent, we would also say they're actually missing the bigger picture. Again, without condoning Moses' action here, he was moved by their plight. Remember, that was what moved him. He was moved. So key. This fired-up Hebrew thinks Moses simply has an anger problem, which he might. He might, but he keeps it there. 
But the people, here it is, only see that. Do you see that tunnel vision? That's all they see. Their vision is limited to see anything beyond that. Those horse blinders are not just a one-time Egyptian thing. It becomes a hallmark of God's people. You probably recall them grumbling for food in the wilderness. You probably recall them begging to go back where in the wilderness? Egypt. Short-sighted. I do not have enough for this one plate today. So hence I grumble and complain and I want to go back. This plagues God's people and I would submit to you even up to today. Short-sightedness. And in such times, beloved, I digress for a moment to say, now is not the time to be short-sighted. Right? Are we temporal people? We're people of eternity. And if we don't put those glasses on, we too can fall to the same things. So, his own people are turning on Moses, but that's not all. Look at verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Pharaoh now hears, obviously this commotion has gotten back to Pharaoh, and whether it is his adopted grandfather or not, Pharaoh, we don't know. Regardless, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh at the time, hears that Moses killed an Egyptian, and he seeks to kill Moses. Moses flees Egypt and heads to Midian, where it says he stayed. Do you see that? He stayed there. Midian, by the way, was east of Egypt, across the Arabian Peninsula. Even we would say it's southeast, if you picture that map in your mind, it's southeast of the promised land of Canaan. And here's the key, it was a considerable way from Egypt. It was quite a hike, in many ways. In Egypt, Moses had access to everything. The company of people, the company of wealth, the company of books. In Midian... Moses is in the wilderness, and his company now, look at it in verse 15, is a well. A well. That's humiliation. From the highest high to the lowest low. And in one sense, we could say Moses brought that upon himself. In one sense, we could say he caused it. He took a life. His actions had consequences. He knew what he was doing. And that would be true, but just in one sense... Yet, the book of Hebrews confirms that. Hebrews 11.25 tells us that Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Clearly, a volitional act by Moses. Moses indeed chose this mistreatment. He chose this humiliation. However, as much as we are active in our own humility, as much as we submit, this is where we get into the providence of God. The first cause, the second cause is... As much as we submit in our own humility with choices, there is a sovereign hand presiding over that, a providential hand ordaining it. I often say to my boys, maybe to some of you, humility is a thing where we either humble ourselves or God will do it. It's one of the two. We either submit to God and get low or listen, if you're truly in Christ, God will do it. He will do it. Of course, Westmount, we learned last week how Moses got to Pharaoh in the first place. We think about these two tracks that weave together. It was by the hand of God. Initially, sovereignly, firstly, 
preserving him, saving him, placing him with Pharaoh, bringing him to that height and also that sovereign hand of God, bringing him down low as well to a Midian well. And church, let's not miss that movement behind the humiliation here today. We must get low. We must humble ourselves. We must repent. We must. And yet we cannot do that if God does not move first, putting the pieces in place. God will bring the humiliation if you are his. And as we'll see in the life of Moses, it is necessary. Moses is brought low by the Lord here so that he can be used mightily. And beloved, it's no different for us. To be humbled is to be used by God. Can I say that again? To be humbled is to be used by God. That's what we see here. He brings it, we embrace it, like Moses. Next, we turn to the character of humility. The character of humility. So Moses is in Midian. The scene is officially shifted now to this new locale. By the way, the Midianites were also descendants of Abraham, if you're curious, just not through Sarah and Isaac. Abraham had concubines, and one of them was Keturah, we're told, in Genesis 25.6. And Midian, the son Midian, is through Keturah. And what Abraham does is he has these concubines and their sons, and he sends them off east. And hence, settling in the east, and eventually the Midianites rise up. In fact, Midian and his descendants rise up to become such a force of oppression for Israel. Do you remember in Judges 6 to 8, who is the great antagonist in those chapters? The Midianites. The Midianites, very familiar to the nation of Israel as antagonizers. Of course, Gideon has risen up to defeat them under the Lord's hand. But here, the Midianites are primitive. And note it, primitive in nation and primitive in religion. In fact, they have a local grassroots priest and all. We see him come on the scene in verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. A local priest of Midian has daughters that frequent this well, that Moses visits. Now there's nothing out of the ordinary about that as wells were focal points in those times. You can imagine in barren landscapes in ancient Near East times, we think about Genesis 24, how Rebekah was procured to be Isaac's wife, right? Abraham's servant went to a well. We think even in the New Testament, what about John 4, the gathering place, right, for Jesus and the woman at a well. Wells were focal points in the ancient Near East. So there's nothing out of the ordinary about that. There's also nothing out of the ordinary about what happens next. Look at verse 17. The shepherds came and drove them away. That was just a fact of life in such conditions. I remember when I was younger, you remember those nature shows on TV. You'd have the weaker animal and the stronger animal. And of course, Raw was horrified, right, as they're torn to pieces, but the narrator comes on and says something like, this is just nature. It's the way that it is. Well, it's the same thing here. These are natural times. You would have ladies coming to a well to draw water, and the big bullies would come and scare them away and take water, maybe flock. Exactly the same dynamic here. Now, in this case, though, Moses, a certain sojourner, happens to be by the well. 
And in one swift comment in verse 17, we're told this, look, the bullies came, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Wow. Where we only caught glimpses of Moses' character in Egypt, the heart of compassion, the sense of justice here, do you see the character rapidly come to the forefront? Moses is the main mover here. He scares off the shepherds, protecting the daughters, saving them. Even more, look at him here. He waters their flock. He shows himself to be the real shepherd here. Do you see that? He's the one truly taking care of the flock. That's the character that Moses' humiliation has allowed us to see. Do you see that? And it reminds us of something. If he wasn't in this humiliation, we wouldn't see this so vividly. Against the canvas of wild Midian, we see a divine instrument emerging in this man of God. And brothers and sisters, I ask you, is that not true of your life? Have you noticed that with humiliation, maybe in people around you? One of two things happens when one is humiliated. One of two directions is taken up. One either heads down further in humiliation, they're blaming, they're escaping, despairing, disappearing. Or one gets up and you see something emerge. Qualities, maybe, that have been unseen prior to the humiliation. And here it is, humiliation creating character. Character. Beloved, true in life, true here for Moses. This truth finds a sanctification parallel, actually, in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, just a few chapters before the passage Gabe read for us this morning, Romans 5, 3, says this, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces what? Character. Character. Mark this, church, true character, it doesn't matter who it is, is only built tested and revealed when you are low and you are going through a trial and most especially when you're suffering humiliation that's when you know what you truly have inside and do you begin to see why God allows that he needs to show you for your good what is going on inside and he's going to do something with that we now zoom in closer to Moses Midianite life look at verse 18 when they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? The daughter's father is here named Reuel. Later he is called Jethro. It often puzzles commentators, the two names, but th there's nothing new here. He's called Jethro in chapter 3 and chapter 18. In fact, Scripture does this all the time. Do you remember Gideon? Gideon has another name. Do you remember? He is what? Jerubal. This happens all the time. Very likely a common name. Maybe a formal name, right? Scripture, you have this indiscriminately, but yet pointing to one person, and it is no different here. So let's not get confused with Reuel slash Jethro here. Here, with the daughter's early return home, Reuel, the father, simply asks this. He says, why? Why? Why are you home so early? Clearly, Moses, not only a man of excellence, but also efficiency, He's a man of efficiency. He made quick work of the shepherd bullies, right? And even throw in extra time to water the flock. That's Moses at work. The daughter's reply to that account is recorded in verse 19. 
They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. It even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. The father simply says this, girls, where are your manners? You, you just left him there. Go, get him, bring him back. So that what? He may eat with us. There you get another good glimpse of ancient Near Eastern culture. That would, it would have been inexcusable, especially after a deed like that, not to mention just a sojourner, to just leave him there by the well. They were a hospitable culture. At the very least, they would say, come break bread with us. Come do that. And you can see this father caring about that hospitality here. So they do so. And Moses receives more than just a meal. Good verse 21. Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Those are notable details. Moses receives a wife and a son. And again, I want you to look at the son's name there, aptly named. Do you see what's happening here? Gershom, like Moses, a name that illustrates the circumstances of his birth. Do you remember Moses being drawn out of the water? Gershom now, a sojourner, a stranger. These names reflect the context. And those are most obvious details and even interesting details. However, they are not the most important detail here. That's found at the beginning of verse 21. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. Just zone right in on that. Moses was content. Church, Moses was content to dwell there in Midian. Moses was not discontent or distracted by thoughts of Egypt. And some would say you would forgive him for being so. But he's not. Moses was not lamenting what he once had or who he should be. The text says, what does the text tell us of Moses' lowest state in humiliation in Midian? It says he was content. Beloved, I ask you, again, a text like this just begs this question, do you know of such character and contentment and humiliation? Do you link being brought down low after such lofty heights with contentment? Is that the automatic association? When I'm brought low, I'm content. Do you partner up exile with contentment? Do you think wilderness naturally means I will be content? I will be content. No, naturally we don't. But that is precisely where spiritual growth happens. Moses' character is capped here, noted, in Midian, by a well, far away from Egypt. It defies uh, conventional logic, does it not? That he'd be content there. I mean, in Egypt, you have everything you want. You have the luxury, you have the opportunity, right? And here Moses is content by a well. He's content. The world would look on at this plight and say, what a tragedy. What would they say? Things like, what a fall. Oh, what a dramatic fall for Moses. But Moses looks around, sitting by that well, with a contented sigh, and he says what? He looks around and says, if this is all there is, by the sovereign hand of God, then I'm okay. I'm okay because God has ordained it. And if God's ordained it, I'm content. 
so much there for us. That is the character of humility. Not depending on our plans, on our authorship, not getting worked up about what we think needs to be, but beloved, the character of humility says, God, if this is what you've brought into my life, if these are my circumstances, if this is what you've ordained, then I'm okay. Even more, I am content. That brings us to one final feature of humiliation. We've looked at the cause and the character. Finally, we looked at the call of humility. Look at verse 23, the call of humility. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Another long passage of time here. See, the king dies and we're getting this a lot between verses. The, the narrative is moving swiftly. And here, most likely, it is true, another 40 years that will take us to chapter 3. We've gone 40 years from Moses' birth, his account of exile, and 40 years in exile that we'll pick up at the beginning of chapter 3. And the focus here is no longer on one person, Moses, but the camera zooms out of one person to look at many people. The Hebrews are still in slavery, in fact, look at it, and for four decades, that's a long time, is only compounding the slavery. It's compounded. So they're left with the only thing that they can do. And what is that? Cry out for help. And verse 23 tells us their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Came up to God. In utter humiliation, in truly being brought low, what is lower than being in the bonds of slavery, in that state, what else is there to do? There's nothing these Hebrews can do, again, in their stocks and in their slavery. The reader might have thought something of Moses, right? If you're tracking, the reader may read this and think, okay, this is the guy, this is the one, but where is that guy right now? He's in Midian. He's in exile. So we're left here, in Egypt, with the only thing that these Hebrews can do. The Hebrews do what? They cry out to God. Christian, I know you have been there. I know you've been there. When there's nothing else to do, what do you do? You cry out to God. You're left with nothing in your humiliation. You're brought low. And you cry out to God. And you sit. Maybe you're swimming in your humiliation. And what can you do as you look around but cry out to God? And here is the good news in this scene for all of us today. Look at it, and I pray we don't miss this. Crying out to God does something. What does it do? It brings God on the scene. Do you see this? Crying out to God brings God into the scene. Amazing. God remembered his promise. Look at verse 24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Amazing. God hasn't forgotten Genesis 12, Genesis 15. He has not forgotten the promise 
that he gave to Abraham. Those of you in the class this morning, Jerry was reminding us, God makes a promise and he keeps that promise. Time is not something that we need to be threatened by. Well, how come all this? No, God keeps his promise. God remembers. God has not forgotten. In fact, mark this Christian, God will never forget his promises. Isn't that encouraging today? God will never forget his promises. And the cry here, in the backdrop of that promise, the cry out is heard. He remembers the covenant. He sees the people and he knows. By the, word, by the way, that word knows, that is knowledge of his people that will move him to a place of proximity and relationship with his people. To, of course, the very memorable beginning that we'll get to in chapter 3. However, before we get there, we cannot miss this opportunity, this call of humility, to grab the lesson for us this morning. Friends, we see something of prayer here. Many of you have asked, well, what does prayer do? I mean, what does prayer do? I'm confounded by prayer if God is sovereign. Have you been there? I'm confounded by it. If he knows all things, ordains all things, does all things, I'm confounded by prayer. Prayer reflects our needs, like the cries do very much for the Hebrews here. Is that not true? You see their needs. They're crying out because they are in anguish and in turmoil. And prayer reveals our needs in that sense, but here it is. Prayer also promotes the purposes of God. Do you see that? Prayer is used mightily here. Mightily. Prayer spurs God to move. Not only in answering, but mark it in fulfilling. Do you see that? Prayer is the trigger that spurs God to move of his decree, right? From eternity past, his promises to his people. He uses in his sovereignty, prayer is the trigger to fulfill it. And beloved, if you're confounded, let's say, I don't know how that all comes together. Listen, only a sovereign God can put all of that together. Only a God of providence can do both of those things. But do not fall off one side of the horse to the exclusion of the other. Your prayers are effectual. Your prayers move things. What happened with our brother Ron recently? Prayer moves, moves things under God's sovereign hand. God's plans were made before the prayers. Can we be clear about that? God's plans, his eternal decree, was made before the prayers, but the prayers complete the plan. See that? The prayers complete the plan. So important. And beloved, here in this call of humility, this is what humiliation brings. Do you see why humiliation is so necessary? How many would not cry out to God if they were not humiliated? How many today would give God no thought if they weren't humiliated? I know that I am not alone here saying, in my humiliation, I cried out to God. And I am so thankful he humiliated me. And I know you're the same. I know you're the same. I pray that you see today why humiliation is necessary. But mark this, Westmount, as we close. Not just for you, Christian, in your sanctification, but in the one who brought your salvation. The one who brought your salvation in another humiliation. Christian, for the one that would take your place for the one that would bear what you are due, for the one that would take on your wretchedness, your sinfulness, that would bear it on a tree and stand in your place and absolve that 
humiliation. It was necessary. Yes, the humiliation we are talking of the Christ. The condescension, the necessary precursor. Like Moses had to before he would be what? The deliverer of his people, as we'll see. So too and more Christ in order to deliver his people. There is, of course, no better passage to describe the humiliation of Jesus than Philippians 2. Philippians 2.5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see the humiliation? This is not from the courts of Egypt to Midian. That's humiliating. But this is God Almighty, condescending, taking on flesh, taking on humanity, and then being obedient and submitting to the will of the Father to go to death in that humanity as the God-man. Even death, which was the most humiliating death of the time, which was what? The cross. The cross. But, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ was brought low. He was humiliated in order to be exalted. And Christian, if you are in Christ today, you participate in that humiliation. You die with him, you are buried with him, and you rise to new life with him. You are united in a death like his, and Christian, you shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, Romans 6, 5. In some way, in some mysterious way, Moses knew this too. Moses knew back then of the promise of the seed, the coming Messiah. He knew it. Even more, he knew he would share in his sufferings, his reproach. You say, how do you know all that? The Moses account. This is why we put Scripture together. Hebrews 11.26 tells us. We continue from where we left off before. Verse 26, Hebrews 11. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. Church, whatever your situation is this morning, whatever your humiliation, I compel you to look at the wealth and reward of Christ. We may be more humiliated in the days to come. You may get lower. In fact, I'm quite sure. But where will your eyes be? Colossians 3, 1, what is your mindset on? The temporal things, what you've lost here, a reputation here, an attack there? Or is your mind fixed on the eternal wealth and riches of Jesus Christ? Why could they sing in prison? Why can you sing today when you're doubting new rules and edicts? Because eternally you are rich. You're set. It doesn't matter. Just as Moses did here, Christian, so to us, looking ahead. The coming Messiah was the hope of the Hebrews. 
the hope of the nation of Israel, and he still is the blessed hope of the church. Beloved, I pray that we together can fix our eyes on our blessed hope together. We need it. We absolutely will need it for what's coming. Father, we thank you so much for this blessed truth of the blessed hope. Father, we look ahead with Moses. We thank you so much that you give us examples in the Old Testament of men of God like him. And God, we pray, we pray we can be courageous like Moses, that we not only would be the ones enacting our own humiliation for your reproach, but that we would submit to your sovereign hand that brings us low. God, enable us to do that so that not only we would be able to look ahead and enjoy the eternal view that, Lord, here and now and for all time, you would be glorified. Lord, that is what our heart intends to do. God, help us to do so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.